Hey everybody, and welcome to another stellar episode of the Everything Went Black podcast. Tonight's guest is Ryan Canavan, known for his record label, Hex Records, among other things. Ryan and I have been friends for, let's see, just about 20 years at this point. And um, yeah, it's a great opportunity for us to catch up, talk about the old days, talk about what's going on today, actually, trying to run a record label in a digital world, tactile products in a virtual world. Before we get started, I just want to give the appropriate shout outs. If you are into fitness and healthy living, please check out on its products. Go to the Everything Went Black Media website. Check out the banner for on it. You can order exercise equipment or you can order supplements and uh, foods, MCT oil, things like that. If you dig coffee, go to savagegoldcoffee.com, which is also available on Amazon. So if you live on the West Coast and you want to save on shipping, or if you live overseas and you want to save on shipping, go to Amazon and both roasts are currently available. So check it out. On the Savage Gold front, I'm going to be, I'm sort of in a uh, cocoon right now, redoing a bunch of stuff. Uh, going to have a pretty cool uh, holiday roast for the, you know, I consider Halloween my favorite holiday. So it's going to be a Halloween roast coming out. So that's something to look forward to. Also, for those of you who want to uh, support the podcast, you can check out our Patreon. Uh, I'm getting started on offering some free stuff. Uh, one of the things I'm going to be doing is an audiobook uh, of some of the early anodyne touring experiences that I went through. So if you are a member of the Patreon, you will be getting chapters for free way ahead of when it actually gets released. So I'm starting on recording these chapters. Uh, so you're going to be getting like an exclusive edit of that stuff. You know, the final version might not contain some of the material that's in these initial stages. So uh, that's like a big uh, undertaking and the actual final product might not even be done until like the middle of the fall or something like that. But if you check out the Patreon, you'll be getting these early episodes or I should say early chapters free of charge. If you want to hit me up, Twitter at Mike Hill HQ, Instagram, Mike underscore Hill underscore primate or at Facebook, Michael Hill. Give our Facebook page a like. Give us a couple of reviews on iTunes. Um, follow me on tw on Instagram. And there you go. If you want to hit me up directly, it's mike.hill at everythingwentblackmedia.com. So um, the coolest thing about, I just realized that you're, you're, the, the Hex Records is still really active, man. Um, yeah, quite active. Yeah, indeed. I mean, because, uh, you know, in, in the age of uh, a lot of record labels kind of, you know, falling to the wayside, um, you know, some some labels and distributors over the years that, you know, I mean, you know, Very Distro, um, you know, Level Plane, like a bunch of labels that in the late 90s and the early part of, the, of this new millennium we're in have been like a staple of the kind of DIY hardcore world are now um, just memories. So it's kind of cool that, Hex Records is still representing, you know, and out there putting out releases. Yeah, I mean, slow and steady, you know, I, I, 
certainly can't afford to do, you know, do the amount of, of records that a label like Level Plane was able to somehow pull off. I mean, they it seemed like they put out a lot of stuff in a year. And from my understanding, they're a label that didn't really have a whole lot of people, you know, work in that label. It was essentially just Greg. And, yeah. And, and uh, I... I can't even fathom how he could do that, you know, to put out like a hundred releases in the space of like eight or nine years or something like that. You know, um, I mean, that's, that's like the level of like a regular, you know, professional record label with staff and stuff like that. That's the amount of records they put out. You know, if I put out like three records a year, I feel like overwhelmed, you know, but that's like my limit, you know? Yeah. That's definitely a solid, release schedule for an independent label these days um yeah so you and i met like you, you were actually one of the early supporters of um some of the work that i've done over the years and uh you know whenever i think about you know my, my other band anodyne and even tombs you know i always think about how like syracuse and like ryan hex were you know was someone that was was like I said an early supporter and someone that I actually relied on for for getting shows in upstate New York and um, yeah so well, when, I mean, when I mean uh, you know uh, I'm I'm glad to have been able to help out but I I, I definitely feel as if maybe uh, because of maybe helping you out you met some really really awesome other people who really you know that you kept in touch with especially like the the Ed Gein guys and the engineer guys you know that that definitely formed quite a quite a good relationship I'd say <laughs> yeah definitely I mean you know I mean Jesse helps me out I mean he's like you know basically my roaster for the coffee company and right yeah Ed right. Gein we toured with Ed Gein um, engineer like all these yeah. great bands and they're all actually Ed Gein is still they're they just you just put out a record by them not too long ago yeah it was, it was right Christmas yeah they're, they're very, very in the background, but, you know, they still, like, practice every week, pretty much, and then they just they just go into hiding for, like, long periods of time. They all got grown-up lives and stuff. And the Engineer guys have a new, a relatively new band. Um, I mean, it's not really a new band, but a lot of people might, might not be aware of it. Right, because they're another group that, you know, they, the three brothers run their store, and two of them have children, and so they don't play out much, but Bloodstone Circle is definitely like just such a such a wildly interesting band is like the cool stuff that they come up with and um you know as, as rare it is as it is um those guys are just like i don't know I, those guys are inspirational just because they they are always pushing themselves to take diy into like one step forward you know like they they were like well you know, how do we go on tour? Well, they figured that out. And how do we record a record? Well, they figured out how to, you know, become pretty good recording engineers. And then they figured out how do I, you know, how do I get a better sound out of my, you know, gear? So they decided to learn how to build guitar cabinets. I mean, you know, so those guys are always just one step ahead, just like always figuring out the next thing. I find that really, really awesome. Well, that's one of the things about Syracuse. Almost everyone I know up there has some other relatively successful venture going on you know it's like you know the brothers have have the, the you know the, the music store you know the right. Gorham, Gorham brothers and uh you know Jesse's got um you know the coffee place and the coffee shop uh recess coffee yep and uh I think Graham works there yeah Graham is like the 
head roaster. He's like the main guy. And then uh, Jesse and this other fellow, Adam, who I'm sure you've met at one time or another, they're the owners. And uh, yeah, uh, it's it's crazy, you know. And Aaron has uh, the printing company, right? Yeah, he he's, he's does a screen printing business, which is pretty successful too. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So when I first met you, um, you had you had the magazine hanging like a hex going on, and you also right. had hex records, and yeah. you also were pretty much like the go-to guy in Syracuse if you played non-tough guy style hardcore. Most of the time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, like you—you you, know—you were the only. I mean, you pretty much were the only guy I knew of, because I don't—I never really played. Well, briefly, I guess I played in the Tough Guy band, but like. <laughs> hey, I booked you in that too. Actually, that's right. Yeah, that was that was one of the uh, proto Hellfests. That's right. That's right. So yeah. I know we're going back into ancient history right now, but the idea of Hellfest and that what Hellfest has turned into, like what I mean. It started out as like a very grassroots kind of like DIY, um, you know, independent kind of thing, and then it turned into this other thing. And was there how how involved did you were, were you in that? Um, well, okay, so to yeah, to definitely go into ancient history, um, there was uh, there was there's this fellow uh, Justin um, who for a while was doing a bunch of shows in Syracuse. This was around like late 1995, 1996. And I thought he had really interesting taste in music. Like he wasn't just booking, um, like the real popular hardcore bands of the day or, you know, the, the more moshy style. Like he was taking a chance on other stuff. He, he brought like a veil up here. He had like Ink and Dagger play up here. Like some, you know, some very, you know, Kerosene 454, some Discord bands. And, and that really opened my eyes because to that point, you know, bands like that really weren't coming around here. So I thought it was really awesome that he did this. And in 1996, like, kind of, I don't know, later in the year or something like that, he booked a two-day fest in Syracuse, and I got really excited about it. And then it got kind of pulled out from under him, and the, the club canceled it on him, and and it kind of, you know, became nothing. And it was uh, definitely disheartening. So the, the next year, in 1997, um, I started booking some shows along with uh, Keith Allen, who you've probably met a million yeah, times definitely. and played in like a bunch of bands. And uh, he and I kind of started collaborating on doing some shows in Syracuse. And we thought, hey, you know, that, that fest was going to be so great. And why don't we try doing that? Why don't we try booking this for Syracuse? And I mean, when I think about it now, we planned maybe like three months in advance. And something like that, like, you know, nowadays would be like six, seven months at least of planning. And we just threw it all together and somehow it mostly worked. And we just called it the Syracuse Fest. And, um, you know, it went off pretty good in 97. Uh, there, was, there was some crazy stuff that happened at it. But by and large, for two young dudes, you know, just getting into booking shows, like it went okay. And then the next year, you know, we had a little better handle on how to do it. So we did in 1998. And then in 1999, I was um, in the midst of finishing up college, so I, I wanted to focus on that, and I, I let that be known that I wouldn't really be helping out that year. I still helped out a little bit, but not too much, and 99, they, they decided to call it Hellfest, and I thought, okay, whatever, you know, I, I have no say in this. Um, 
you know, I just put a minor hand in. And I think for like the next, you know, year or two, I just helped out on a really, really minor level, especially like, you know, Health Us 2000 was some huge thing and it was this crazy debacle and a lot of insane stuff happened with venues switching and things happened like that, but it was still a lot of fun. And by that point, I was kind of, you know, outside of it. I was just like an observer, you know, I would go because it was in my town and a lot of bands I liked played. So, um, and after that, you know, I, I think Keith, especially, he wanted to be very serious about it and he really put, you know, a lot of time into it and he had other people helping him. And um, especially like the guys from like Trustco Records were quite involved because at the time, Josh Grabell lived in Syracuse and he helped out and then um, a couple other promoter, local promoters who were pretty involved with booking shows, they helped out a lot too. So, you know, after a certain point, I, there was nothing for me to contribute, honestly. <laughs> and in a sense, I'm kind of glad I stepped back when I did because it just became this, just this enormous thing that just, I'm sure would just stress me out and be, you know, completely overwhelming. So, Yeah. Yeah, well, well, these days it's it's like a career move to be doing health. I mean, actually, I mean, then it moved down to Jersey, and then the health fest that goes on in Europe. Does that have anything, any ties to the U.S. version of it? No, uh, to my understanding. So, okay, so the, the the last year that health fest actually happened was in New Jersey, and um, I think a, a large part of that had to do with. Uh, some of the people who were helping with it, they were based out of New Jersey, so they had access to different venues there that were um, a better deal than they could get up here. And then, uh, and then obviously, you know, it stopped happening here. And uh, to my knowledge, I guess um, the name Hellfest was was like incorporated or something. So these the people in France, wherever it happens now, I guess they bought the rights to the name. Uh-huh. But it has, it has nothing to do with, like, you know, any of the people who were originally involved with it have zero involvement. They basically just sold the name, and that's it, and it's completely out of their hands. So whoever, you know, some people in France own it now, and it's something yeah. completely different, totally unrelated to what happened in Syracuse. Yeah, I mean, Kiss plays it. <laughs> it's like Kiss <laughs> yeah, and, like, Alice like, Cooper headline Hellfest now. Yeah, so, you know... Um, Kudos to them. <laughs> what a, what a um, like a, a sort of manifestation of the American dream in a lot of ways, man. You know, it's like, you know, this, yeah, it's, it's kind of strange. weird. So it was like yeah. a weird story, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, it could be like studied in like a, um, you know, school of management class, I think. <laughs> you know, where, yeah, I mean, I, I think some of the guys who worked on Hellfest, you know, they could probably give a class on them. Um, you know, some things not to do because they, I mean, not to say I'm completely, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not guilty of this because obviously the first, the two years that I worked on it, there was lots of mistakes, you know, like just learn as you go. And I think the other guys that kept it going after I, I stepped away from it, they certainly made their fair share of very big mistakes, but they were, um, they were just figuring out as they, they went along, you know, and they certainly could teach a class on uh, what what not to do these days, you know. Um, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty or whatever they say. <laughs> yeah, it's like the the other big fest that was happening around that time was Crazy Fest down in Louisville, and um, yeah, yeah, another another Ryan Ryan Patterson, I believe, is was involved yeah. in that. 
Yeah. And that's I never had the opportunity to go. I, I always I really wanted to because that was another one that had, you know, always a great lineup and they and they they made I think they made an extra effort to like try to make it really fun, you know, and, and really silly and and uh, a good time. And I know a lot of people who went, like a lot of people from up around here who went to it and they, they really enjoyed it. Um, and obviously, you know, Ryan Patterson is like the guy, you know, he's just an incredible person. Um, but uh, yeah, that's another one that just, you know, I, I guess it kind of ran its course and that was that. We, um, Anodyne, that is, played the, the last one that happened. Um, and by that time, I mean, that had to have been like maybe 2004, 2003 or something like that, maybe. Right. 2002. Um, and uh, by that point, it had pretty much grown really far away from what I initially had envisioned it being. I mean, I know, I, you know, I'd read about it. <clears throat> you know, initial records had that zine, you know, that, that they put out. And, um, yeah. And you'd read about the health, the uh, sorry, the the crazy fest lineups and everything, and yeah. it yeah. looked like it all took place in like a VFW originally, with like you know bands like Coalesce would play, and you know right. whatever, and, you know uh, Boy Six Fire. Like, it was like down on like the riverfront in some like massive, you know, uh, stage, and you know, so yeah, yeah, it was like yeah. this full rock experience. Like when we played, right. it was um the headliner was uh, Andrew WK. Yeah. Um, you know, and then Hatebreed played Mastodon. It was like a pretty, pretty, it was Mastodon right at the point <clears throat> where they were starting to become, you know, Mastodon, like people know of them now. So it's like, yeah, you know, sure. the big stage vibe and everything. And, you know, um, right. I remember us and playing enemy played that. You know, and we we were on at like you know like one o'clock in the afternoon or something. You know? <laughs> I'm sure you guys went over fabulously, both bands with that crowd. I'm I'm sure it was just a bang up, you know. <laughs> oh no, it was it was like yeah, it was pretty grim. But uh, <laughs> but what tripped me out about that whole experience was like, you know, it it was it was an interesting time because I feel like, especially like around like 2002, 2003, like hardcore had that started to change where. You know, back in the 90s, you would see distros at shows and like, you know, maybe a label would have like their records for sale. And, um, you know, a kid with like a, you know, like a distro of all this different stuff, you know, zines, books, all that kind of shit. But at Crazy Fest, and it was like kind of like, like I remember it being it being this like really heavy experience when I saw that there was like Victory Records was there. And if you bought Victory products they put it in a plastic victory bag and it was like going to a mall. It was like very much this, um, commerce based, uh, very mainstream sort of vibe. Even, even though a lot of the bands, you know, like the locust play who, you know, they weren't, you know, obviously not a commercial band in any sense of the term. Right. But there was like this move towards, um, making like, inroads into like the more mainstream world which you know hardcore definitely moved in that direction in the subsequent years after you know crazy fest i think you know so it was like a real kind of like end of an era beginning of a new era kind of time period at least at least like you know my experience with that yeah kind of i mean i i got the i got the vibe from it that was kind of similar like on a smaller scale of like a like what I would imagine, like Warped Tour to kind of be like, you know, because um, I mean, I 
haven't been to a warp tour in 20 years or whatever, but um, I get the impression it was something similar to that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've never been to a warp tour, but like now it's just like shit that I can't relate to is like, you know, right. the, the, the sort of vibe at warp tour. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, like I don't, you know, I don't want to knock all the, I want to knock some of those bands because they're dog shit, but I mean, I, I don't want to knock, you know, all of them. It's just that, like, man, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 40 this year. I, I don't really relate to your teenage angst. <laughs> well, sick, sick of it all played this that. year. I'm, I'm cool now, you know. <laughs> yeah, sick of it all played this year. And they're, you know, those, those guys are like, you know, a. Uh, oh, they're, they're the best. Yeah. They're incredible. Yeah. It's funny yeah. how many people actually of that like different styles of music all agree that Sick of It All is a great band. You know what I mean? They are. They're kind of like they're kind of like the the unifying band of hardcore. Like if you if you have you know any sort of um, disillusionment about like oh you know I grew up in the punk and hardcore scene and all those guys were full of shit and I learned later on now I'm just bitter and depressed. It's like well then look to Sick of It All because those dudes are like exactly the same. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're like the one unifying thing, you know, that everyone can agree on that they are awesome because they are. So. And with only one lineup change, really. I mean, they only just Craig. Craig's like the quote unquote new, yeah. new guy. He's like the young guy. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he's been in the band for like twenty something years at this point. Yeah. yeah. He's still the new guy. <laughs> yeah. I actually I just saw Craig today. Actually, um, it's, it's interesting that we're it's funny that we're talking about uh, about sick football right now. But uh, but yeah, he's, that's that's how I knew they were on Warp Tour because he's like just came back from you know being on the road and he's like oh yeah I was at Warp Tour I'm like cool yeah I mean we couldn't we could you know have an entire podcast dedicated to just talking about sick of it all and that would be fine with me but you know but I, I imagine you'd want to talk about some other stuff I had uh, I had Lou on like uh, maybe a year ago year who was that Lou Lou, uh, Lou from Sick of It Oh Lou Lou Kohler right yeah. on. Actually, the episode right before you was uh, was Roger from Agnostic Front. Oh, nice. Yeah, I don't know if you want to check that out. It's, uh, yeah. it's an interesting. He has a book out um, about you know the early uh, AF years, which yeah. is a pretty pretty interesting book. Um, yeah. Then again, it's like everyone seems to be putting out books from the New York hardcore scene, and um, you know it's kind of the same ground is covered in a lot of them. And, uh, I mean, I don't know how many, I mean, I, it's surprisingly, I'm not, I've never been a big New York hardcore fan myself, but, um, you know, a lot of work related stuff goes on where I end up having to talk to some of these guys and inter- uh, interview right. them and yep. end up reading some of the material that they've written. And, um, the Harley Flanagan book, um, the first, you know, 150 pages, 200 pages of the book is like a really uh, concise document of New York in the late 70s and early 80s. And um, as a historical sort of filter, I think that that book is really, really good. I mean, later on, it gets into all this other stuff, which, you know, is kind of controversial. And, you know, it's like this big uh, hot, hot button discussion that people have down here about, you know, Harley and John and all this other stuff, which is not something I'm really interested in, but yeah, sure. Yeah. But the first section of the book is like really cool. You know, if you're interested in finding out about, you know, the New York, New York city and, you know, it talks about, you know, the, these like very obscure, like punk bands that were making their rounds in New York in the early days and the different clubs and, you know, types of neighborhoods and things. 
Yeah, that, like, you know, that, that, um, that piece of New York history I always find really fascinating, especially how it kind of crosses paths with um, some of the early New York hip-hop. I, I just find that stuff absolutely, like, mind-blowing and fascinating because that, that's such, like, a... That's such, like, a spark, you know? Like, I mean, I was, like, you know, five or six years old at the time that it was going on, so I didn't know about it then. But but um, just that time period, like, for music and how, like, you know, like, underground culture was just, like, really coming up, you know, with, like, punk on one side and hip-hop on the other and some of them being, like, you know, of the same mind, kind of. I, I yeah. find that absolutely fascinating. I, I love I love that sort of stuff. Yeah, New York is really unique that way, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a carpetbagger. Like, I didn't grow up here. I grew up, you know, like just above Westchester County, so I'm not, you know, it's not like I was this life on the streets or, you know, rough and, <laughs> rough and tumble youth that I might, you know, I, I was a suburban guy, but right. what, I, what I was, but, I, you know, I always had an appreciation for New York City um, and the fact that the diversity of the different types of people that live here, you know, I mean, a lot of the punks and, and you know, kids in the hardcore back in the old days, you know, we're, we're, we're different culturally than say Boston or Chicago or DC. You know, there was a lot of black people and Latino people that were involved in the scene and culturally, you know, it crossed paths with like the hip hop culture and Latin music and all this other stuff. And that's kind of like really interesting to talk to a guy like Roger or Freddie about that since both of those guys, you know, were around during those years. And yeah, they were there, you know, they witnessed it, definitely. Yeah, I really hope no one makes a movie about that time. To time <laughs> though. Yeah, it could only—I don't know. It, it could be. It could be. Uh, it could be really bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be very difficult to get it right because you got you know so many people with differing accounts of how things happened, and um, you know you're likely not to get a completely accurate story. Yeah, like when, when I was like nine years old, ten years old, I would go down to the city with my dad to go to like baseball games and stuff, you know, and it was like, you know, that was, it was like taxi driver, you know what I mean? Like we would be on yep. the subway and my dad's like, don't touch anything, don't look at anyone, stay here, you know, it's like, you know, be, we went to um, the circus one year, you know what I mean? And it was like, going to Madison Square Garden was like the most tripped out intense thing I've ever experienced at that age, you know, to, to be like this little kid walking around in that neighborhood at that particular time and just seeing, being like overloaded with the, all this stimulus, you know what I mean? Smells and sounds and all this crazy shit, man. Yeah, I think I was in a similar position in a sense. I mean, obviously I grew up further away and, you know, in Syracuse, but when I was like, 12, I think, was the first time my dad took me down to New York City. And, uh, you know, thankfully, he was he was very into, like, exposing me to culture and things. So we went to New York, and he took me to museums, and we saw, like, Keith Haring art. But this was, like, 1989 or something. So yeah. we go into Times Square, and it's still, like, kind of a shithole. Yeah. <laughs> There's, like, street vendors everywhere trying to sell you bootleg tapes and shit and porn theaters everywhere. And I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> so... I got kind of, I got, I caught some wind of that too when I was a youngin', you know, but obviously not, not, uh, not on a frequent basis. Only, a, only a couple times before it really started gentrifying. It's all gone now, man. I mean, now it's oh, yeah. like, you know, uh, you know, New York has the charm of like an airport these days. 
Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. even like where I live in Brooklyn, um, you know, I live, I live in a neighborhood called, called Greenpoint, and that yeah. juxtaposes Williamsburg, and I remember going, I remember like, when I lived in Boston, coming down to New York to go see Fetus and Unsane play at Coney Island High, and, um, and I was like, we were, we were going to, we crossed the Williamsburg Bridge accidentally, and we drove through part of Williamsburg and it was like warfare total yeah you know and now that same neighborhood I walked through it just just the other day I was down there and it literally felt like I was like in an airport it was like <laughs> it looks just like it has the same character as like being in like in like a nice airport you know not even right. like LaGuardia or JFK but in like you know, a really cool airport, like in Houston or something, you know, it's like, a, yeah, it's, it's very safe. It's very, you know, yeah. I mean, New York, it's so much more safe than it used to be. And uh, which, you know, that's a good thing. People oh, don't is. want to be victims of crime or whatever. You know, you don't want your car. I had my car stolen in New York city once. I know. Really? How, you know it, yeah. yeah it was like, what's the story with that? How'd that happen? Oh like, man. I mean, okay. It got stolen in like the most like placid fucking neighborhood too. I um I went down uh when was this? It was um I'm trying to think of the year. I think I wanna say it was like two thousand and two, I think. And I, I went down there um on my own and uh, I stayed with a friend who was going to Fordham University. So he was like living in midtown Manhattan, more or less. And um I parked on the street and um and apparently I was, I was in a parking area that I thought was fine. I wasn't going to get towed or anything. So I'm staying at his dorm. And then the next morning I can't find my car and I'm thinking, oh shit, you know, I got towed. I called, you know, police and their procedure was to canvas the neighborhood, you know, in case like I was just some stupid idiot tourist who got lost and can't find his car. So turns out, and then, you know, we didn't see it. Turns out like they, they called up the, the impound lot. They didn't have it. So they're like, yeah, it looks like you got, your car was stolen. Oh man. And then I got it back like two months later or something like that. Or three months later, I got some letter from the city saying they found it in like in front of a fire hydrant and the battery was stolen out of it. So someone joyrided it and stole everything I had in my trunk, which was nothing more than like some tools. And, um, and the battery missing, and they wanted to find me for all the parking tickets that were oh that I God. accrued in front of the the fire hydrant, which I, I fought that and won, and I got my car back, and oh. it was really strange, you know. But even even in 2002, I'm saying like New York was particularly safe, like it was a generally safe place to be, you know. It, it gentrified quite a bit by that point. And, uh, and then it just got even more gentrified after that, you know, and, um, you know, I, I kind of have a love hate thing with New York now. Like I want to go down there because I have friends who live there. I have, you know, great places to eat. There's always, you know, some good shows going on, but you know, just the hassle of being in New York is, you know, it kind of wears on me. So they got some balls trying to charge you money. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that blows my mind, man. Like you're yeah, they're like, here's a bill for you know your parking tickets. I was like, it was stolen at the time, <sighs> so I I was able to get a police. I had to get a police report, you know, stating that it was stolen at the time and use that. And I should have framed the letter, you yeah. know, like, hey, I beat New York City, you know. Wow, <laughs> man, you gotta you gotta pay here. You gotta pay. It's like every every yeah. you gotta be on your toes in this fucking town, man. It's like 
if you don't, you know, every 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 turn, there's somebody looking to put their hand in your pocket for something, you know. No doubt. It's crazy. No doubt. You know, it's like, like I have the van, you know, down here. It's not, right. you know, we don't tour in it anymore, obviously, but I still own own a van for mm-hmm. various things, you know. But the, um, you know, it's like Greenpoint used to be very easy to park in. There used to be, you know, not a lot of people here. And uh, it was kind of this, like, hidden corner of Brooklyn that no one went to, really. But now it's all people are moving here. I have to, it's become like, um, like it's it, part of my consciousness of, when I have to get up and move the van or, okay, I have to think two steps ahead. If I go somewhere tonight after, you know, a certain hour, I have to be careful in the morning because I have to move the van to a, you know, a meter and then move it again. It's like such a, I I burn up so much mental resources thinking about parking. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I got these friends, you know, I got a friend who lives he lives in like the heart of Williamsburg and I, I guess he's been there for quite a long time. So like, you know, he's just accustomed. He's had his apartment for a long time and he's like, I get a great deal on this place, like 1200 a month. And it's a fucking railroad apartment, man. It's a fucking hallway. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, and you get to live like, you know, around like just off of Bedford Ave. Like, I don't see how that's a deal. <laughs> no, man. No. <laughs> it's ridiculous to me. And, uh, I, I just, I, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people will make the argument that, you know, oh, but New York's got everything, you know, there's, everything's happening here. But, like, yeah, but you don't have the money to do any of it no, because you also got any much to live down there, you know? Yep. So, yeah, you know, it's okay to visit, but, man, you couldn't, you couldn't force me at gunpoint to, you know, <laughs> reside there. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a scam, definitely. It's like, you know, people buy, buy you know, that's it, it's like the the legend, you know, selling the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, I got a bridge for you. I can sell you too, you know. Right, right. But it's funny, talking about the gentrification, though, it's like, yeah, I, I'm not one of those guys who's, like, waxing nostalgically about getting, you know, the days when you can get stabbed walking down the street, you know, and, and oh, yeah, it was better in the 90s when I was in danger all the time and, like, there were hookers everywhere and drugs, but it's like, the problem with gentrification, and I think this is probably a national project uh, problem, is that, it's not like an individual is improving his neighborhood. It's like a company comes in, a corporation comes in and buys up this area and they change it without actually enriching the existing area that's there. You know what I mean? They'll just like knock a building down, put in another building and your landlord now, if you're going to move into that building, is lives in like Illinois or something. You know what I mean? Yep. And yeah. that's really what's, I think, killing the whole vibe here is just there's no character and everything is removed. There's no direct line to the people owning these properties or any of that kind of stuff, you know? Sure, sure. I mean, you know, like romanticizing the old days of, you know, well, I almost got stabbed down on, you know, St. Mark's Place or whatever. Like, yeah, it makes for a good story, but, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm happier being able to walk down the street and not get stabbed. However, I think your argument is, is completely salient, you know, about, yeah, like, the, it's, it's, not, it's not enriching the neighborhood. It's someone coming in and pushing poor people out. Yeah, totally. It, pushes them, it just pushes them somewhere else. It doesn't solve the issue. It just pushes people somewhere else, like, further out on the fringes, you know? So, yeah. sure, yeah. And, and the new people that move in are just here, you know, for short term. Like, that's... Like, you know, where I live, I'm not, I'm not trying to paint this picture like I'm some, you know, 
you know, long, I mean, I've been living here for quite a while, but like, I'm not like a, a you know, a old school guy who's, my family's been here for 20, 30 years or whatever. Right. But I have been living in this neighborhood for a while. And the new people, I talk about this too much actually, but like, I'm going to talk about it again this time. Around. Go for it. But the, um, yeah, the people that move in in the last couple of years, I've been having a lot of problems with them. You know what I mean? They're just, um, like, they don't really have any respect for the neighborhood or their neighbors or anything, you know? And it's like, the pe- oddly enough, the people that have been living here family wise for, you know, a long time. Yeah, they pick up garbage after themselves. They kind of cut the noise like around ten, you know. And yeah. the new the new jacks that moved in, they rage until all hours in the night during the week. And there's like garbage everywhere, dog shit everywhere, and it's just like a real drag because they they know that in two years they're going to move away. Right. Um, and you're not you know you're not the only person I know in New York who has that complaint. I. I talk to several people who live in that general area, whether it's, you know, Greenpoint or Williamsburg or Bushwick or, you know, those neighborhoods. And they all say the same exact thing, you know. Um, I, I bore witness to it, the, I think, the last time I was in New York, uh, which was in, in, like, the springtime or something like that, late yeah. springtime. And I, I came down to the city to see a show, <clears throat> and um, I arranged to stay with a friend, this, the same friend who lives in Williamsburg, and he said, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm away, I'm out of town right now, but, you know, I'll leave the key for you, and you can just, um, you know, I'll have you meet up with my friend, he'll give you the key, and then you go on. So I had to wait right on, like, Bedford Ave until, like, 1 in the morning or something like that for this friend of ours to show up with the key because he worked late. And I just, just watched, there's just, like, you know, roving bands of just, like, douchey dudes you know, throwing shit around. Yeah. I mean, it, it looked like it looked like my neighborhood. You know, in the peak of the school year. Like, I live in a university neighborhood, and it's like Syracuse University is like a party school, and, and uh, you know, the beginning of the semester on a Saturday night is like it's like fucking Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, it's just <laughs> trashy kids everywhere. So, um, you know, I've grown to ignore it at this point. But I was like, Jesus, this looks like home, except for like taller buildings. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, same vibe. So I, I hear you. That's yeah, a real drag. <laughs> of so, course, we do. We, we sound like, you know, old men get off my lawn type shit, but. Yeah, you know, that's true. You know, like, it, it, the funny yeah. thing about it, too, is like, I kind of feel like in some weird karmic way that um, this is like payback for all the years that I was, when I was in my 20s living in Boston, when I was like, you know, shooting Roman candles with people and like. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right yeah and I guess the moment I do start thinking like man it's like 2 in the morning shut the fuck up outside and I'm thinking man when I was like 19 at 2 in the morning I was probably you know like doing donuts on someone's lawn or some bullshit you know so so I try not to you know I try to hold back and not be a dick cause I'm like you know I was, I was a total fucking dick when I was 22 so you know but you I know what, man? Back. I look out my window and I try to check these people out, you know, and see, you know, see what they're up to. Up to. And like, they're not 22 years old though. That's that's the sad part. <laughs> these dudes are like going through like a second, you know, second childhood at 35, you know. Gotcha. <laughs> so that's even like like sadder in a lot of ways. That is that is kind of sad. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I wanted to talk about was the hanging like a hex magazine, which you did like for many years and uh uh-huh. 
And, you know, it, it was always one of my favorite scenes back in the day. And did you actually have any kind of journalistic, uh, you know, training or anything like that before when you started doing that? Um, no, not really. Uh, I mean, I was a big, I was a big fan of writing, you know, uh, throughout like high school and stuff. I took many writing classes. Some were like advanced writing classes. And, um, so I, I, I knew I was able to be a, like a, a halfway decent writer of some kind, but I, I never was like, I wasn't involved with like the school paper or anything. It stemmed from me and my friends being really into comic books when we were younger and we were all into art and drawing and um, we actually tried making our own comic books. So we learned how, just via trial and error kind of, of how that, you know, like um, like if you look at a, a magazine, you know, it's, it's not like page one, page two, page three, page four. You think about the front page and the back page are one page, like page one, two, and, you know, 39 and 40. And then, you know, it layers in like that, you know, it's, it's, uh, so we learned how to do that stuff. And that's what led me to be like, when I was getting involved with punk music and stuff to say like, Hey, I could do a zine or something that can be my, you know, outlet. And I know how to do some of this stuff already. So I jumped at it from that angle, from comic books. How many issues of, of uh, Hanging Like a Hex came out? Uh... Well, it had a different name at first, and then by the fifth issue, I changed the name, and so altogether, all in all, it was like 18 issues over, over I don't know, almost 10 years. That's, that's, still, that's still a pretty dedicated uh, output, really. I mean, if you think about yeah. what it took to do that back then, as opposed to now. Yeah, um... Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it was, <clears throat> I mean, I had, I had someone get in touch with me recently saying that they, they really enjoyed the zine. They've always been looking for this one particular issue they couldn't find, and I happened to have an extra copy. So I was going through, like, my old files and my old back issues and stuff, and I, I found one. And uh, I'm looking at some of that stuff. I'm like, man, there's a lot of mistakes in here, and, you know, some of this looks like shit. But, <laughs> you know, um, uh so, I mean, I, I guess in some ways, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the output and I'm happy with the creativity or whatever that came of it. But, you know, some of it, I'm like, oh, I don't want to look back at this. This looks awful. You know, so there's that too. Was uh, this person, just out of curiosity, were they like a younger person or, or an old fuck like me and you? No, I, you know, uh, I feel like maybe somewhere in the middle, you know, someone someone who's got a little bit of age on them, but, but they're not, they're not like our age or anything I think they just I don't know I think they just had an admiration of like 90s hardcore zines or something like that you know maybe they maybe they caught the tail end of it or something you know when I was still doing the, the zine um, and then just wanted to go backwards from there so they're few and far between I imagine yeah man I feel like kids are real in, in the digital age are really missing out on like the tactile like zine experience because you know even even major magazines are going under and everything's online now everything's a you know a blog with like videos and all this other stuff right right i think i think like a, a zine can be successful now a print zine can be successful if you're not working in like the immediate so like something that became a real struggle for me 
especially at the tail end of when I was doing the zine, was that um, more uh, zine-type content was online. And it's like, I want to interview this band. So the next day, you you send them questions via email or something, and they respond back two days later. And then at the end of the week, you have an interview online. Whereas, like, when you're doing a print zine, it's like you interview the guy, and then, like, four months later, it comes out. So... I had to think about that in terms of like, how am I going to interview people? I can't, I can't ask them like, Oh, Hey, that's the new record, you know, because by the time the zine comes out, that record's been out for five months and you know, everything's media, everything's like, you know, snap your fingers. You missed it. So I had to think of interview questions for people that were timeless. And I think some of the best zines, some of my favorites that I still have, you know, issues of were those type of zines that asked those type of questions that were like, I can go back and read it seven more times and it's still going to mean the same thing because they're asking these people timeless questions, you know, uh, things that don't, that, um, that aren't just in like the moment they're, they're like bigger type questions. So I had to think like, Oh, maybe, you know, maybe I should start talking, ask people about like family or something like, cause you know, that's, that's an interesting concept that you can just kind of go back and read over and over again and not just ask them about, you know, um, you know, hey, what, what what members of your band are vegan? You know, like that doesn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, like that's like a 1992 question. <laughs> you know, so it, it it certainly became harder, and um, and the content. You know, if you want to do successful like now, I think your content has to be like timeless or maybe more like art based, and not so much like, hey, we're gonna like talk to this band and talk about their record. Like that's you know that's been done. It's been done like five billion times. You got come at it with a different angle or a different way so i think that's how you do a zine now and make it relevant no, that's a good point you know because like some of the yeah I, I actually miss reading zines i mean you know i mean after a while just the cost of doing physical media you know drove the price like high you know oh yeah for sure. And I mean, as yeah. it stands, I, I subscribe to two non-music zines right now. I mean, I subscribe to Room Org Magazine, the horror zine, and, right. and Horror Hounds, like two horror, horror mags. But um, yeah, like back in the day, especially, you know, like in the 90s, it was like, I would, I would read, you know, I'd read, I read Hex, you know, I was a big fan of that magazine. And um, uh, Great God Pan, you ever check that out? No, I never heard that one. It's, um, it's not even really about music. It's like, um, it's about like Southern California culture. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there'd be like all kinds of like weird stories about the black Dahlia and, um, you know, Charles Manson and, you know, Richard Ramirez and stuff like that. Oh, right. Right. And then, uh, your flesh, which was like during that period of time catered pretty, pretty hard to that AMREP touch and go like noise rock kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that one. Yeah. Like a couple months ago, I actually thumbed through some of those magazines, and um, it's real trippy because you, you you thumb through them and then, like, you see ads for records, you know, that came out, like, 20 years ago. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, fuck, man, I remember this shit. I remember Allied Recordings, you know? Like, oh, yeah. You know these lit that those the Allied comps that came out were fucking amazing, man. I found out about so many bands that way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've been I've been going through this thing uh, just recently of um, paring down some of my like seven inch records. You know, I got like hundreds and hundreds of seven inches. So I was going through like 
pretty much all of them. And it kind of involves like, all right, you know, unless I got this like last week, like I haven't listened to this in a year or five years or whatever. So I'm going, so, I, you know, I think like, oh, well, how, why am I hanging on to it? Like I should listen to it. And if I still think it's relevant, I still like it, then I'm going to keep it. And if I don't, then I'll sell it. So I've been going through like hundreds of seven inches, like sitting around listening to a lot of stuff. And, and, um, you know, I think it's some of those like comps, you know, where back then I was like, oh, this comp has got like five or six bands on it. And I can learn about these five or six bands because there's one on there that I really like. And then two or three that I heard were good. And then a few that I don't know about. And I listen to most of them now. I'm like, man, these comps fucking suck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) They're bad. There's like a couple that are still awesome. Like, um, what was the good, the bad, and the ugly comp? It was like a three, seven inch. Yep, I have that. Yeah. There's so many good bands on that. It still holds up. It looks awesome. And, you know, but then there's other ones where like, you know, that came on some European label and it's like, oh, well, like, you know, Inhumanity's on here. That might be cool. And you listen to it and it's like, oh, this was this? They're like, they're like garage demo. And then there's like two European bands on here that, you know, just blow. And so, you know, uh, with age, you know, things, you kind of sort out the, the wheat from the chafe or whatever, whatever the phrase is. <laughs> you know? Man, that, that good, the bad, and the ugly comp is, is pretty crucial, really. Um, For real, yeah. It had, uh, what, La Gratona was on that, Craw, I think, was it, wasn't Craw on that? There was a Craw song on there, there's like Discordance Axis is on there, Slug, and, um, uh, shit, well, um, I want to say, maybe Devoid of Faith? Maybe not. There was some band on there that was like, it, it, it's like you had to really look in an obscure way to see how it fit on that comp, you know? But right. it, it made sense. I want to say Starkweather? No. Maybe. No, they're not on it. No. Um, but yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, like Floor and Cavity are oh, on yeah. there. That's it, yeah. Like yeah, back to back with Discordance Axis and Lagratona. Like, Okay, like this all works. I'm I'm down with this. This is like a lot of crucial, insane, heavy, crazy music. You know, Apartment Two Thirteen on there. Like, yeah, there's some there's some pretty wild shit on that comp. It it stands up, stands the test of time. Oh, okay, here we go. I just brought it up. So we got, let's see, we got uh, Lagratona, a band called Fork. We got Craw. We got the Boston-based band Slughog. Right. We've got Cavity Floor uh, Floor Sixteen. Yeah. Yep. That and this band Toad Liquor. Who I. That's the only <laughs> song I've heard of by them on there. It was just. <laughs> that might have been the only thing they ever put out. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, thug, uh, not not the band from Boston, but a, a different Thug. Uh, and then there's this. This is the fucking. This is it right here, dude. It's like Ice Nine, Discordance Axis. Apartment 213, Devoid of Faith, Spaz, Dammit, Enemy Soil, and the grind era of suppression. Yeah, that's just like... You can't go wrong. Holy shit, right? Yeah, yeah like that's just like win-win like all the way through. Yeah, you can't go wrong with that. And it's not, and then they're not like bullshit tracks either. They're not just like leftovers. They're like pretty, pretty solid tracks overall, you know? Yeah. I remember the Floor song being fucking awesome. So, yeah, uh, that's a... That's a very, very good comment. Apparently, not that hard to come by. Like you can, you know, it's it's not like worth a ton of money or anything. Like you can go on Discogs and find it for like ten bucks or something. That's uh, for anyone out there who is a fan of that style of music or any of those bands. That's ten 
well spent dollars if you can find this thing and, and throw down and For sure. uh, yeah. get yeah. hours two, of entertainment. Two thumbs out. up, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's a cool looking package too. You know, it's like oh a, yeah, like all silk screen and stuff, and it had this weird package of a package design, which I ended up using a form of that for a couple releases I put out. So yeah, the whole boxy kind of package with like three records stuffed inside. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Have um, you ever thought about digitizing the back issues of uh, of Hex or you know any kind of online version of it anywhere? Um. Yeah, I gave it thought for like a few seconds, and then I thought, man, what a pain in the ass it would be just to digitize all this shit for like, you know, because I'd have one issue that'd be like eighty six pages, you know, like. Oh, yeah. Nah, I'm gonna spend all week like <laughs> scanning this or whatever. So um, you know, I mean, if if anyone is out there who actually has those issues and wants to do it, I don't care. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I think I've seen some minor digitization of some of the content of some of those zines, like here and there, like where some, you know, some band just, um, like an interview that was done with them, they just scanned the page or something and put it up somewhere. So, I mean, if anyone does it, I don't care. Like, go for it, you know? So you're, you're advocating piracy, I see. I'm totally advocating go for it, like, with those zines. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Someone else may as well. You know, I mean, if they really, really feel like digging through old content, that's fine with me. So did you start Hex Records right around the same time you started doing the zine, or did one predate the other? It was, yeah, it was a couple, a few years later, actually. The, um, the zine started in, like, 1995, and the label was not until 1999. So, um, it, it dropped out he just fell off the map I have no idea what happened 
and I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to do this on my own. I just, you know, I, I think I just needed someone to like push me to be like, go and do this, you know? And so, so at that point I figured it out. You know, I talked to, um, uh, like that band Nora ended yeah. up being on the comp and, and I, I talked to Carl Severson here and there and, you know, he owns our own ferret records, which became good fight records. And I asked him, I was like, Hey man, where do you, where do you press records? Like, you know, what's your contact and how do you do this? And he, he gave me some insight and then I just ended up doing it. I mean, in 1999, it was, as long as you had the money, I think it was a relatively easy process. And so I put the record out on my own. And I just did it as an insert and in one of my issues, and um, and then it, it went from there. Then I kind of had the confidence to be like, okay, I guess I can put out records now. So I did. So back in '99, there was still you know like Mortem and all these different uh, distributors were around, and uh, right. So you know, was it how how difficult was it to get your records distributed? I mean, of course, after the seven inch that you put out. Um. It's interesting because at the time, you know, I, I was doing it as an insert in my magazine, and I had a distribution through Tower Records, if that was to be believed, if, if anyone remembers that. So, I mean, I was fine. I got rid of a few hundred, no problem. Um, after that, um, I was kind of on my own, like when I actually started putting out other stuff that wasn't part and parcel with my zine, it was like a separate thing. And I was kind of on my own, just kind of figuring out, like, how do I do this? You know, like, who do I distro through? And there was a few, like, distros that kind of picked up on some things here and there. But mostly it was the bands themselves and just going to shows, just going to lots of shows and, like, bringing them around with me and, you know, be like, here, buy this, you know? So, and then uh, eventually um, Lumberjack got into the picture and I ended up getting distribution for my label through them, which was in retrospect, like one of the most poorest decisions I ever made, but you know, at the time it looked good. So, yeah, I mean, Lumberjack was ruling. It was like Lumberjack and Mortem, and and to some extent, Ebullition for like a very specific type of thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and Revelation always had like a big thing going too, you know, but they were a little, at the time anyway, I think they were a little more insular, like they only kind of distributed like a, a little bit of stuff, and now, now they're like, quite big you know they distribute a whole bunch of different stuff um but yeah lumberjack was like that was like the peak at that time that was like the best you could do you know for a punk rocker like yeah (laughs) and then they quickly went downhill like violently downhill (laughs) i I remember that very very (laughs) uh you know sort of you know graphically because I, i was at the time that happened i was working at newberry comics like at the warehouse in boston Right. And I just, there was there like some merger or something, right? With like Lumberjack and Mortem. They, they were, bought Mortem. Yeah, they bought Mortem. That's what with, they with the, like With the idea that like, oh great, we're going to get all these awesome labels and we're going to make tons of money and like all the labels jump shit. They're like, fuck no, we're not, we're not going with this guy. <laughs> so they bought Mortem and essentially bought nothing. Yeah. See, I think, and, and that's like similar to what I said earlier. That was about, you know, Crazy Fest. That was kind of like, you know, the end of, I mean, I, I don't want to get all like romantic about this stuff, but it's like, you know, but it's like kind of the end of a different sort of mindset, I guess, that, you know, was replaced in like hardcore and like punk music, I guess, in general, you know, like, you know, this sort of like corporate takeover of like a different distributor and then like getting 
non-biodegradable victory records plastic bags to like carry your stuff in it was like to me it was like the beginning of like this kind of the idea of of um getting further and further away of like what like the diy essence of like hardcore music was all about you know sure yeah but i mean you also gotta consider that like you know you i mean you can't stop you know like a digital age you can't stop like the current flow of information how it happens now and it's a completely different landscape so you know um i don't know you know as much as people want to romanticize like a diy kind of ethic or something it's like well you know i mean if i'm booking a show i'm still gonna like make a facebook event for it because that's how people find out about shit you know like i'm gonna make flyers because i enjoy making them and i'm gonna post them up around town and put them in places but i'm also gonna like you know, do the do the online thing too, and um, and you know, I don't I don't feel that there's anything wrong with that. It's just um, it's just that's that's the way that people find out about things now, and you know, I mean, there's you know, for better or for worse, like you can make an argument either way. You know, there's some things that are great about it, and there's some things that totally fucking blow about it. You know, like everything is very oversaturated, so. You know, it just it distills, it waters things down a lot, and it gets a little harder to find the good stuff, you know, and you have to wade through a whole bunch of, you know, bullshit to get to, like, the good stuff. And, you know, but if you're older, then uh, you know what it's like to hunt for a good band. I mean, <laughs> you know, now you just have to do it through a computer and going through a bunch of other bullshit before you get to the good stuff. And, you know, whereas before, like, when we were younger, if we wanted to find out about a good band, we had to, like, talk to certain people and then like find some weird record store out in the middle of who knows where or like do some mail order and just hope the record shows up after concealing five dollars in an envelope you know oh, so, yeah. Yep. yeah it's, it's just a different form of like being on the hunt you know of, of, of finding the good stuff it's a different way of looking for it that's all I, I remember ordering records from SST and like that would get them like six weeks later or something like that you know what I mean <laughs> yeah or never you know <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would order stuff from, like, Vary, and, you know, they'd always have, like, put an alternate list in case we don't have it, and I just <laughs> gave my alternates, and I'm like, man, I didn't order any of this shit, and I'm, like, out 20 bucks, now I gotta, like, work my stupid grocery store job just to make money to get that record I did want, like, yeah. in another month, yeah, so. They gave you, like, a 25 to life record instead of something, you know, like. I, you know, that, I, actually, that did happen, I'm, I'm certain that that did happen, you know, yeah, I mean. <laughs> You know, there's enough bootlegs out there of Rick to Life. You know, I'm sure I'm sure everyone has a 25 to Life record somewhere. Anyone over the age of 30 probably has one that they didn't order. Yeah, I've got a couple, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. With Hex Records now, do you take advantage of all of the digital opportunities out there? For example, like, can you buy Hex releases on, uh, you know, iTunes and stuff like that? Um, yeah, it's out there. And, I mean, partially because it's a little bit out of my control. Um, like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll make no qualms about it. I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really terribly adept at, at getting things hosted on like iTunes or, or Spotify. I don't use, I don't even use Spotify. I don't, I don't like it. Um, I don't, I don't appreciate like the, the pitiful, um, that they give to artists. Um, 
but that's you know but I digress I mean that's beyond the point I just I, I'm just not terribly good at that stuff so I have a distributor um, a, a very good distributor that is, I mean they don't they don't move like you know a ton of my records however I they guarantee will send me a check every single month and they're they're nice and they know what they've been doing they've been doing this stuff for like 25 years so and they they take some of my records um, and they also manage like the digital side of things oh. outside of band, outside of Bandcamp I, I completely control like Bandcamp stuff because I know how to use that and I think that's they are a very like legit digital platform for music um, because I, I think that that's a way they're, they're like a platform that not only supports like good causes but they um, when, when you buy something from off of Bandcamp like you know, like almost all that's going to the artist or the label or whatever. Like it's a, it's a very direct, there's not many middlemen there. Whereas through my distributor, there's a lot of middlemen and, you know, my stuff's out there on like every digital platform and all that, you know, that you could imagine. But, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's getting out to like millions of people. I'm, I'm sure a bunch of people use it, but not a ton. So what's uh what distributor is this? Uh, they're called MVD Music Video Distributors. They um, they did most they do most of their business as like a like a, with like DVDs and stuff like that. They cool. they specialize in like horror DVDs and trash cinema and like oh, wow. music DVDs and stuff like that. But they also distribute some record labels and stuff too. And they do all the um, like when when Amrep was recently doing some represses, they they managed all that stuff. They they handle all that. So they're pretty awesome guys. Like they're, they're like old school dudes. You know, they come from like an awesome background. They they know what's up, but um, you know, they they get my stuff listed everywhere. I mean, you can go, you can like go to like Target, and like you know, like the Target website or something, and find my records. Strangely enough, I think it's just because MVD has inroads insofar as getting things listed like anywhere. Um, doesn't necessarily, you know it doesn't result in me selling tons of records because who the fuck shops at Target and is going to want, like, a bleak record? You know, it's just not going to happen. But, you know, I mean, they, they do their job. They're really nice guys. Uh, they've been around for a very long time, and um, they're very organized. So uh, so I stick with them. You know, they're, they're not going to, like, sell, like, a million records or anything like that, but they're, they're very good at what they do uh, on a small scale. So... Well, that's good to know, man, because I, I often wonder if, you know, for, like, a small label, like, how you, you'd even get records out to people aside from just direct sales yeah. and mail order and stuff, you know? I mean, they're also, like, very easygoing when it comes to me selling. Like, I trade with other labels or I'll, you know, sell to record stores on my own, like, you know, independent record stores. That If I'm in a different town, I'm, I'm going to stop in at the record store and see if they want some records or something. So I'm still all about that, and they don't care about stuff like that. And, um, uh, so I, I, I go through a number of different channels. They're, they're like my main one, but you know, I also deal with other distros and labels here and there. Pretty cool. You mentioned Bleak. That's a, a pretty excellent band, by the way. Yeah, those guys are fucking vicious. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're <laughs> like, they got a, they got a solid, uh, solid, uh, work ethic too. Or did they break up? kind of um like their guitarist tj who wrote 
pretty much he he wrote almost everything. Um, he was also an architect, okay. and uh, he he has some very very like serious health issues. He had to actually have a heart replacement. Oh man! Uh, yeah, he had to have a heart transplant. He's like thirty two, mm-hmm. um, so he's he's like he really can't do much. You know, he still kind of like writes music and you know, but he he can't go on tour or nothing like that. You know, that that would just kill him. So um, so the band kind of had to you know step back and um, not really do much. And uh, I guess you know, in, I mean, I was just talking to one of those guys like the other day, and they were talking about how they felt bad that they weren't doing anything. I'm like, well, yeah, your guitarist, can't, you know, he, he can only he can't get out much. You know, I understand, but um, I don't think that the idea of their band is like completely put to bed. I think you know, if at some point TJ's feeling up to it and said I wanted to play a show, then they would play a show. But yeah, they. In the time that they were very active, I mean, they were super active. They were on the road like constantly, yeah. and uh, yeah, and that was that was an admirable trait from them for sure. My uh, Except, my former drummer just... Andrew Hernandez also. I don't yeah. know if he recorded with them, but I know that he played live with them a bunch of times. Uh, Andrew, I, I don't think Andrew recorded with them. However, um, Andrew toured with them a bunch. Yeah. He went on like three tours at least with them, and. And their music kind of demanded, like, a dude who could really just crush it at drums. And, you know, obviously, you know, Andrew just kills it. So, um, yeah, he, he was good. And then they got this other guy named Mark who lives up in Canada to play drums. And that guy absolutely killed it. And then this dude, Cam, who lives around here, he was their drummer as well. And he's actually a good friend of Andrew's. And Cam just destroys it, too. So, like, they, yeah, they, I mean... I can't believe they went through like musicians, like drummers like that, who were all really, really good. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, they would tour so hard that it was hard to keep people in the band because of how much they toured. So, um, so at some point, I, I think maybe they'll they'll do something, but you know, who knows when? Well, it's good to know that this, the idea is still out there. Um, sure. Yeah. So there's actually a pretty cool like roster of active bands you got there's that band Grizzlor from Connecticut too yeah yeah uh their LP just came out like I mean I was, I was assembling them this week so and and the the orders are going out this week so yeah they just put out like an LP um they were kind of holding off for a bit because they were apparently supposed to do a record with um with uh the label that Chris Spencer from Unsane does and I, I guess that 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 arrangement sort of I don't know went on the back burner or, or whatever I'm, I'm not sure exactly I, you know I think they waited on it a long time and then it kind of they kind of were like whatever we want to put something out and I I said I'll, I'll do it you know and uh, it's it's a hell of an LP it's they're so weird they're so weird but they have like such an insanely like heavy just beefy ugly tone it's 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 really great yeah. And then, of course, we have our friends, um, you know, the former engineer um, band, and uh, Blood, what the fuck's up to I feel bad. Blood Sun Circle. Blood, Blood yeah. Sun Circle. Blood Sun yeah. Circle, yeah. Right, yeah, they just put out their second LP, but I, I didn't release it. Um, again, there was another case of these guys being, like, completely DIY and, like, learning how to do things, and, you know, I put out their first LP, and when it came around time for them, or when they decided they wanted to do another record, 
they started asking me some questions about like, you know, what's a good place to press. And I gave them a bunch of tips and then they, they figured it out and they, they pressed their second full length on their own. Um, and, uh, you know, and it sounds awesome. Yeah, it's great. I bet, man. I always like really enjoyed whatever those guys did, man. There was always, it, it always, even though Blood Sun Circle is way different than Engineer, it still has like the characteristic of those guys working together. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's equally as intense as Engineer. Like I always thought of Engineer as just being like this intense band. Like it's like it just comes at you like you know like a freight train. And I think I think Blood Sun Circle is an equally as intense just in a different way like they take a little longer to do it there's like way more tension in the music and yeah. there's um you know bobby's you know instead of just barking at you he's like howling yeah it's like man and then you see him live and they just the wall of sound bam you know so uh yeah i always i'm always going to be a fan of whatever those guys decide to do it's it's always an inspiration for sure so now, how, how do people um, get at you online? Like, you, you know, just the website, face, is there Facebook and all that sort of stuff? Do you want to run through all that? You mean, like, um, you know, just to check out what I do? Or, like, are you talking about bands that are approaching me? No, I mean, just, like, if, if there's anyone out there who wants to buy a Blood Sun Circle oh. their first album. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Like people actually want to buy records from me. Oh, yeah, yeah that, that happens from time to time. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, so, um, so I sell the music through both, like, a, my website through um it's like hex records at big cartel and then i use a Bandcamp page which is hex records at Bandcamp, and um uh you know you can buy records from either of those sites and um i've, I've making i've been making a point lately of people like international people um it's so so expensive to ship records internationally so i've been directing people if they want to buy any of my records and they're not from the u.s to go through mvd and it's just MVD shop because for whatever reason, you know, they're, they're a large, they're like a corporation they're a larger business and they're able to do like pretty inexpensive international shipping rates. So if someone from another country wants to buy a record for me, I'm like, Hey, go through MVD because I'm going to have to charge you $20 just to ship a, a $10 record. Um, they will charge you like eight. So like, I, th- I think they're a better deal. So, I'm more than happy to send international traffic through them. Anyone else can go through Hex Records, Bandcamp, or Big Cartel. Cool. Yeah, they might yeah. have like a, a container or something like that. You know, they might actually be shipping European European orders from Europe. You know, could be. Yeah, I mean, it's totally possible. Uh, and I don't, I don't pretend to understand the mechanics of it all, but um, they they seem to be able to offer a, a decent deal. So yeah. Right on, man. Yeah. Are you, uh, you have like Instagram or anything like that where people can like follow yeah, you or? Yeah, I do like Hex Records on Instagram, but I mean, it's, it's not exclusively like label content. Sometimes it's about shows I'm putting on or if it's, um, uh, you know, bullshit, <laughs> you know, just, you know, regular Instagram bullshit. Like, Hey, look at this mountain, you know, like, <laughs> cause I like to travel, you know, so, um, and I, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I use Twitter barely, you know. Um, so, I mean, I, I try to stay connected as well as possible without completely losing my life into some sort of digital rabbit hole. You know, I still try to maintain a semblance of being able to leave the house. So, yeah. Hey, man, do they, did, 
the Westcott. There used to be that place, the Westcott Community Center. Is that, do they still do shows there, or is that thing? Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, so, so the Westcott Community Center uh, has been hosting shows since like 1995, and before that, it was closed for a while. It just it wasn't in operation. And I've seen flyers of shows that happened there in the 80s. Like specifically, I saw flyers for Gang Green playing oh, wow. there. Scream. Dude. So I was like, wow, this place was active in the 80s. So anyway, it's been doing shows for a super long time. I did shows there for a super long time. Eventually, I joined the board of directors. So I'm I'm not in charge there. I'm I'm a board member. I, I mean, I, I hired our executive director, who actually runs the place as a day-to-day center for seniors and after-school programs and things like that. But, um, but I, I still occasionally book shows there it's, it's a little more difficult just because they have so much programming going on that's outside of the realm of punk rock you know they have classes and stuff like that so there's not that many shows that happen there but i, I actually have a show going on there this saturday uh for um for my band dialysis and grizzlor and uh, a local band called difficult who are members of a million other bands from around here and uh, this other band, Bad Cops, who haven't played Syracuse in a long, long, long time. They're all old Syracuse guys who haven't played a show in many years, and they're coming back. So um, so it, I thought that would be the perfect venue to do it at because it's a place that we're all familiar with. So from time to time, there's shows there. Not that often. Probably some of my fondest memories of playing in Syracuse were at the Westcott. I always really liked playing shows there. Yeah, Syracuse definitely has been fortunate over the years. I mean, people complain, but they don't, they don't get that. Like it's so much worse than other towns that we, we've had a pretty steady spot to do shows like small DIY shows. Like there's always been a venue for it. You know, there's always been a place, whether it's the West Park community center or whether it's like the spark art gallery or the badlands or like, you know, a couple basements around town. There's like, there's always been like, or Gorham Brothers, they host shows at their store. I mean, there's always been like a DIY spot to do shows. And people don't, I don't think people really appreciate that fact. But I mean, we've been like super fortunate. Like most towns don't have that kind of thing. Like they might have a spot for six months and then for two years they got nothing. So, you know, we've been lucky in that regard. And, and that's only something that I've, I've really liked about this town. Right on, man. So yeah. uh, it was great catching up with you, Ryan. And, um, Absolutely. Yeah, dude. So a lot, of, a lot of good shit going on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I keep active, man, and it seems like you do too. So that's always good news. Uh, sometimes I think I'm getting way too old to do any shit like this or play in a band or anything like that. And then I see people who are maybe like a couple years older than me or maybe like 10 years older than me, and I see that they're doing it. I'm like, well, if they can still pull that shit off, then... I can too. So, so I'll I'll keep doing shit like that as long as I am physically and mentally able to, and I I hope you do the same. But I don't really have any of the things that I do, so <laughs> it's like you, you sling coffee and you play in an awesome band. I mean, you know, that's, there's there's that. So you know. Yeah, I mean, it's like you know, I pretty much have reduced my life down to like a few things that I do well, and uh, I kind of, or I think I do well at least. So I just kind of keep it the, after those things, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, that you know, that's how you do it. You, you know, you find what you're good at and you just push at it until like you get better or you know, or you die. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
All right, yeah. man. Well, thanks, thanks for listening out there, and uh, thank you, Ryan, for uh, for spending like an hour plus of your time with me tonight. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for getting in touch. It was, it was a pleasure. stuff going on i mean we, we just got back from tour um okay last in in july so i mean we we were out on the road for um i mean the first half of the year we've been just doing a lot of touring we're going back out in, in october and uh, were you on the west coast yeah it was all over man everywhere then yeah. it was probably hernandez that's, oh yeah that's Andrew. where i heard it like i saw you play recently so yeah yeah okay cool because there's been uh we were supposed to be on tour right now today's the day um, in the States and then that got canceled, but somewhere someone confirmed a, a European tour with tombs and today is the day without actually checking in with us. <laughs> so, I mean, there wasn't, there was this concept. I mean, we were actually asked to do this tour in Europe and I was like, yeah, it sounds good. But that was the last I heard of it. There was never an official offer or any kind of, um, you know, uh, notation about, you know, guarantees or any terms. 
or any kind of logistical stuff presented to us. And then uh, about a couple weeks ago, I started seeing posts on Facebook and Instagram about um, tombs and today's day playing all these dates overseas. And I was just like, oops. So it's kind of messy. Um, right. You know, the, our booking agent over there straightened it out. And uh, I just feel bad because, like, <clears throat> you know, if I – it's something I definitely would, would be interested in doing. I just, you know, would rather – I can't really agree to something without knowing what all the terms are, you know. No, of course, that's totally normal, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so yes, the the things I heard about, you know, you playing out were all legitimate and actually happened. So. Okay, that's that, good. Yeah, yeah. No funny <laughs> stuff. 